hope you slept quickly. And believe it or not, today is our final teaching time together for this semester. So next week, when we start Grace and Granite, uh, we won't be in this building. We're going to be over at the Ministry Center, Ministry Center Classroom 1, for a breakfast. So some of you men have agreed to feed us and get up even earlier than normal. So we'll have a time of fellowship next week and uh, some food and maybe some testimony time. We'll, uh, we'll see how, how that goes. So same time, just not in here. Over in the uh, over on the other side. Today is the twenty fifth of April. We're going to open our Bibles to Psalm twenty five. We'll begin there. It's meditating on the the Psalm of the day, and then we'll be finishing up this section on navigating the gray areas of life or the parts of Scripture that. Um, Give us principles or places where uh, places of life where Scripture doesn't give us any command or prohibition. And uh, so we'll round out how we apply some of those to our own lives, our desires to glorify God in all that we do and love others. That love is expressed in the way that we navigate some of, of these areas. Um, and then we'll talk about how you actually work that out. There's a final discussion uh, in this section about, okay, so we're talking about conscience and we're talking about these matters. What does that look like in a church where we're all meshed together with different uh, areas of conscience and uh, what does scripture say to us in trying to navigate that? So that's where we'll finish up today. And then we're done. We're done with the the Grace and Granite uh, curriculum, meaning that we started and worked all the way through the book, um, and uh, which means that next semester when we start, we go right back to the beginning and and uh, and, and start over. And some of you have jumped in in different points. So as I, as I told you, we just pick up each week. If you missed something, missed something, you'll get it. We just just keep rolling, and and uh, we'll be reminded if we've been here the whole time, all the way through. Of course, you remember what we taught uh, three years ago, right? You remember about all those, yeah, sure you do, Uh, which is why the scripture repeats itself over and over, because we need constant reminders of the the truth, and we need the truth, um, truth reinforced. Psalm 25, it is a psalm of David, beautiful psalm. It says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. Do not let me be ashamed or put to shame. I mean, David's saying, I'm looking to you, Lord. I'm trusting in you, putting my eggs in your basket. Don't, uh, don't let me down. I know you won't. Uh, don't let me uh, stumble in, in that way. Then he turns toward others. Uh, Don't let my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none of those who wait for you will be ashamed. He's encouraging his own heart. Those who deal treacherously without cause will be uh, ashamed. He's distinguishing between himself and, and others. I'm looking to you, Lord. I'm trusting in you. Don't allow me to be, to be put to shame. I know I won't be. Um, and in the way, he, he describes the way that he doesn't want to be put to shame, his enemies exulting over him. They're not looking to you. I'm looking to you, Lord. And then here is a great prayer to pray, in, intent of your heart. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. Look at how many times he says the same thing. He's, he's pleading with the Lord. You do that. Ask the Lord. Make me know your ways. Teach me your paths. Lead me in, in your truth and teach me. It's just a reminder. <clears throat> as uh, <clears throat> I heard Al Mohler say, I've repeated to you before years ago, I heard Al Mohler say years ago, the way 
which you approach a sermon or the way you approach grace and granite, you know, is not uh, sitting there with your arms crossed or as an outfielder waiting on the, you know, the, the ball maybe to come to you. Uh, view yourself like a catcher. You're coming in and you're in the crouched position. You have your glove open and you're ready for the pitch. I mean, you're, you're pursuing God. You're, you're looking toward Him. You have a part in, um, in the teaching event. You're not just sitting there hoping something hits you. You're coming wanting to hear from the Lord. And, and one of the ways you do that is prepare your heart. And while you're there, you're, you're saying, teach me, Lord. Help me understand. In the middle of a sermon, you find yourself going, what, what, I don't even know what he said for the last five minutes, which is probably often, but anyway... Make sure when that happens, you say, Lord, Lord, help me. Help me, um, help me focus. And you're just constantly having this conversation with the Lord and with yourself with the goal of, of paying attention, trying to press out, the, press out the distractions. Remember, O oh Lord, verse 6. Um, oh, sorry, verse 5. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. That's why he wants to know. He's, he's the Lord and the Lord saved him. For you I wait all the day. This is the intention of his heart. He's not just sitting somewhere. He's saying, as I go about my day, I look to you. I, I wait on you. I Remember, O Lord, your compassion and your loving kindness. He's appealing to the Lord based on his covenant. Remember, Lord, you're the one that that made the promises. You made the covenant with us. For they have been from old. Not the first one, Lord. It goes all the way back to Abraham and Moses and now me. And now watch this pattern. This is encouraging. Verse 7. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your loving kindness, remember me. So in verse 6, remember, O Lord, your covenant. So first he, he, he calls on God to remember his own promises. Lord, you, you set your love on us. Um, remember that. It, it's all based on you. And then he says, don't remember the sins of my youth or my, my transgressions. Turn your eyes, Lord, toward... Your own promises, what you've promised. Turn your eyes away from when I was walking astray, the sins of my youth and my transgression, according to your loving kindness. Remember me, according to your hased, um, according to your covenant faithfulness, your mercy. Remember me. Don't, don't look at me through the lens of my sins. Look at me through the lens of your own promise, your own covenant. Um. Remember, don't remember, remember me um, in this way. For your goodness sake, O Lord. We're always appealing to the Lord based on His mercy, based on His love. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, He instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble to justice. He teaches the humble His way. You remember the prayer earlier, make me know your ways, teach me your paths, lead me in truth. Truth. So, what kind of person will God do that uh, for? Well, it's the humble person. He leads the humble in justice. He teaches the humble his ways. Um, all the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your namesake, he's appealing again to the Lord. For your namesake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Um, we'll look at the blessings and the benefits of the person who's, whose life has the characteristic of fearing the Lord. Who is the man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way he should choose. Again, here's part of the answer to what he was praying earlier. Instruct me, Lord. Well, fearing the Lord. So humility and fear of the Lord will bring 
God's blessing in this way. He will instruct him in the way he should choose. His soul will abide in prosperity, and and his descendants will inherit the land. The secret of the Lord are for those who fear him. Intimate knowledge, relationship, blessing, um, and he will make them know his covenant. My eyes are continually toward the Lord, based on all that. For he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. My troubles, the troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of distress. Look upon my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Look upon my enemies, for they are many. And they hate me with a violent hatred. Guard my soul and deliver me. Do not let me be ashamed, for I take refuge in you. Let integrity and upright, uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O Lord, out of all his troubles. Great psalm. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and our standing before you, our appeal to you in everything is because of your mercy. You chose us before the foundation of the world. You set your love upon us. You, you have redeemed us and we're yours. And that's all based on your grace, not anything we are or would do and we if you would do that for us, if while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, um, you'll not withhold anything from us now. We appeal to you even this morning based upon your mercy, your covenant, your, your love. And yet, Lord, we, we live right now and we, we have needs. We have enemies, enemies in our own soul, enemies outside, enemies in the world troubles, difficulties, and uh, we, we, we don't want to fall. We don't want to fall flat on our face. We don't want to be triumphed over, especially by unrighteousness, and so we, we appeal to you. And Lord, we want to be humble men, and we want to be men who fear you. So um, you give grace to the humble. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And Lord, we understand wisdom is skill in applying your truth to, to life and to difficult situations and to dealing with enemies. And so we need wisdom. We need skill to be able to apply your truth. Um, and a humble man looks to you for that truth. You're the source of, of truth. And so we humble ourselves. We look to you. We trust in you. And then we ask for skill to be able to, to apply it. And, um, and that's how you work those two things together in these situations that are, can be confusing and scary. And um, We ask that you would not allow us to, to fall because we're looking to you. Thank you, Lord, for forgiving us. Um, keep us void of offense between you and and ourselves and and other people. Teach us even this morning. May iron sharpen iron. Um, We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, open to page 302. We are looking at navigating the gray areas of life. We're talking about using a grid system, finding a grid system. We talked about doctrines and convictions and principles and preferences. And really, the area that we're talking about here is the part of Scripture where there's not a clear command or prohibition. Could be an area where principles are are applied, and then you have the freedom to be able to put those things into practice um, based on your own conscience. But we don't just do that uh, haphazardly. We are aware of our own hearts. We're aware that we can easily fall astray. We're, we, we can deceive and be deceived. We can be self-deceived. Um, and we also operate in our area of, of conscience and freedoms uh, in light of other people, in light of other Christians that 
have differing consciences. Some are young, some are strong, some are older in the faith, but still weak in some areas. And so we're not an island unto ourselves. We, we live in such a way, even as I prayed. We want to be void of offense between God and, and, and man. We want a clear conscience in that way. We don't want to cause our brother or sister to stumble. We don't want to put an offense in, in front of them and, and lead them into some type of shipwreck or something that they're not able to handle, even though in our maturity we might be able to, to do that. And so what Scripture teaches, uh, what Scripture commands, it's non-negotiable. Um, the, these are the commandments of the Lord. These are the prohibitions of the Lord. And in that area, you need to study the Bible, you need to know the Bible, you need to know how to interpret the Scriptures. So you're not... Um, uh, making something that is a conscience area, a command. You don't want to add to Scripture. You don't want to take away from it. But you need to know what, what it says. So there may be certain areas of life that um, you, need to, you need to make sure you know that the Bible, what the Bible actually commands and what it, what it prohibits. Uh, because even as we're learning in Romans, before you start applying or living the Christian life, you have to know what, what's commanded, what, what's the theology there. And if you learned any lesson from last Sunday, it's that um, if there's ten and a half verses of theology and two and a half verses of application, most of the time what the Bible is doing is teaching us what to think. It teaches us what to think a lot more than it teaches us what to do. Because if you think right, think the, the words of the Lord, the ways of the Lord, the thoughts of the Lord, then your actions are going to be natural. They're going to, to, come, to come out. So, A, starting point, know what the Bible commands and what the Bible prohibits. Then, in these other areas where you, it's clear it's not a commandment or a prohibition, know what the principles of scripture teach, you know. So there are areas where it's okay in certain circumstances. If you apply this principle, um, the Bible speaks very, uh, um, what's the right word? Um, harshly comes to my mind, but that's not the, the, the right word. Um, it, uh, it, 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 it teaches you have to be very, very careful with, uh, with debt. Debt is not spoken of in Scripture in a very positive way. So there's a principle. So now you have to figure out, so does that mean I never, ever borrow money? I don't go in, I don't have a mortgage on my house. I don't have a mortgage on, you know, a piece of business property. Well, maybe you do, maybe you don't. There's a principle that, that's there. You know, the borrower is slave of, of the lender. But Scripture does not prohibit anywhere that you should never, ever go into debt. What are these circumstances? So how would you apply that principle in certain areas? So you have to know what it commands, what it prohibits. You have to know principles which are there. And they may say don't do it in certain circumstances. It may say it's totally fine in other circumstances. And then you have to be aware in these other areas where Scripture doesn't even really give us principles. These are life. You're just living, and you have a conscience that's being governed. You're aware that I'm living out these, these commandments and prohibitions, these principles, and I'm living out these freedoms in light of other people and in the church, other believers, which are, are different places of sanctification, so I have to beware of, uh, of that. And you're living out, as we'll see this morning, you're living out your Christianity in front of unbelievers, which are unsaved, obviously. And you are a representative of Jesus Christ. They're seeing you. They're watching you know, what, what, what you do. And you're not responsible for how they respond. You, you're not responsible for their own heart. Just like you're not responsible for the way a believer may respond to your freedoms. But that doesn't mean that you're absolved from all responsibility. You can't uh, change what someone does or, or, or how they, they respond. 
but you are responsible to keep them from stumbling to the best of your ability. You know, um, you are responsible for knowing that they're there and being judicious in the way that you you carry out these principles. Meaning that you wouldn't say, you know, oh well, I don't care what they think. You know, I'm free in the Lord. I have liberty. You know, in 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 this area. Or they're unbelievers, so they're not going to understand anyway. You know, that's an unloving you know, attitude. So we'll talk about that this morning. We move through all of these, and we are on the last three. And then, as I said, we'll talk about a word of unity in the, in the body. So two, again, here that go together, one negative and one positive. And so the question is, we ask ourselves, will it lead others toward Christ? And it tells us right here, this is a very difficult issue to try to apply. Um, The Bible teaches that we should never get into a situation where our innocent behavior is evil spoken of. Now, why is it innocent behavior? It's innocent behavior because it's not something commanded or prohibited. It's something that you're free in your conscience to do. So you're not doing anything wrong with this behavior. So there's nothing suspect about the behavior. There's nothing that, that, that you could find in Scripture that says don't do this or this is, this is a little shady. I mean, this is something that's innocent. You're void of offense before God, both in what Scripture commands and in your own heart. But it can then be spoken of as evil. It's not evil. It's spoken of as as evil. For example, if what we're doing, though not sinful, could misrepresent the Lord, and I'm emphasizing not sinful, because there are certain things that believers sometimes do that are sinful before an unbelieving world, or suspect before an unbelieving world. That's not what he's talking about here. So if there's anything that, you know, uh, immoral, um, anything that is, uh, you know, even has a hint of immorality, the Bible says, anything that has to do with deceptive business practices, um, you could probably find some other examples there. That's not what he's talking about here. Of course you shouldn't do those things. Those are sinful things. These are things that are innocent. These are things that are not even close to that area. But an unbeliever sees it, and an unbeliever interprets it in a way that, that they speak of it as evil. They, they, they're offended you know, by that. And he says this is a difficult issue because unbelievers are unbelievers. And they can be offended about anything even things that they shouldn't be offended about. So how, how am I responsible for the way an unbeliever uh, you know, responds? So, for example, if what we're doing, though not sinful, could misrepresent the Lord, His church, His people, or, or His truth to the world, then we should avoid it. Not only should we build up less mature believers in the body, but we should have character... Um, that is above legitimate question in the eyes of unbelievers. 1 Peter 2, 3, and 4. Void of offense between God and man. Some things are not evil, but can easily be associated with questionable elements of society. It's an old way of saying that, isn't it? Questionable elements of society. Or even worldliness. Remember, if Christian freedoms are truly freedoms, then we should be just as ready and willing to give them up as to enjoy enjoy them. So I think one of the things that you can say here, and I'm going to open this up and ask you some examples that you can think of where this has happened, and we'll just work through it together. I mean, one of the things I think he's pushing on here is just a careless attitude. Where are some ways that careless attitude toward unbelievers where we are flexing our muscles of freedom, where we're genuinely free. We're living in the midst of an unbelieving world, a watching world. Um, and that passage in, you know, in, in Romans 14 is also tied to Romans 2, 
where you remember Romans 1, the condemnation of the ungodly, the un-Gentile world. Then Romans 2, Paul goes after the religious. And, And he says, the name of God is blasphemed amongst the Gentiles because of you. You have the law, you have the circumcision, you're the covenant people, but the way in which you're, you're not living that out, the name of God is blasphemed amongst the, the, the Gentiles. And you can look back in the history of Israel, and Gentiles were, were looking at Israel going, I don't know, if, I mean, if, if you're the representatives of God, I don't know that I really want that God. Um, so you have to be careful you know, there. On the flip side of that, who hasn't witnessed to somebody and they told you, A, they're a good person, and B, the church is full of hypocrites? So it's an easy target, and you'll get that all the time. So you can't change that. They're looking at trying to find you know, the one person, the most horrible example that they can possibly dredge up in their history or their aunt told them about, about the church, and they came, and they're godly, and they did everything right, and then the church just pulled them by the scruff of the neck and put them in front of the congregation, you know, made them take a, you know, a tattoo of a big A whenever they were an adulteress, and then ran them out of the church and egged them in the parking lot. I will never be a Christian because of that, you know, that's the extreme because an unbeliever is looking for cover, you know, in that way. On the flip side, you have to acknowledge that, as I said this past Sunday, you can't judge the Savior by the saved. Because saved people can act pretty nasty. <laughs> and they can be pretty, pretty ugly even to the unbelieving world. So now back to ourselves. How do we then do that? How do we represent the Lord in these areas of freedom, in these areas where it's not commanded or prohibited, before an unbelieving world, to the extent that we can, because you can't change what they interpret or do, or, uh, or they intentionally misrepresent what you're doing to cover their, own, cover their own sin. So what are some ways that you see challenges or you've seen this, this, this work out? Talk to them. Yes. That's an excellent one. Yeah, I remember. Was it was it Billy Graham that said he would never ride in a car alone with a, you know, with a, with a female? That's a great. That's a great. Uh, um, you're. You're at. I mean, I, when I worked with Anthem. Uh, for Blue Cross Blue Shield, I worked with women. Um, I'm a married man. I don't go to lunch, with a female coworker alone. If there's a group, then yeah. But I'm not going to take my secretary out for lunch, even on Secretary's Day. I may take all of them out for lunch, but I don't ever want to be in a situation like our brother saying that you could find you know some some impropriety there. That's just again, I may have pure motives. I'm trying to bless, but I don't want to be put in that situation where somebody sees me and says, hmm. They look kind of chummy there, and that, that's a good example. What are some others?
Yeah. Yeah, it's a good example. Uh, I'm, I think if, even if you want to take that to a, uh, to a, a apply that in another angle, um, you know, we, we, we drive around with five bumper stickers, you know, on our car that say, um, you know, uh, American by birth, Southern by the grace of God, or, um, you know, Dummycrats, or, which is my dad's favorite line. Um, and, you know, in, in such a way where I am, I might even be speaking truth about some of these areas, but I have to be careful about how an unbelieving world then stumbles over, you know, one of those. We even had discussion at one point um, about, uh, and again, we're talking about areas of freedom, talking about areas of conscience, so you may work this angle a little bit, a little bit differently, which is, which is okay. We even had discussions amongst the elders, wow, this has probably been 10 years ago, about putting political signs in our, in our, in our yards. Not that there's anything wrong with political signs or there's anything wrong with politics. You should be engaged in, in those things, voting and working to get godly people in positions of authority. But in your neighborhood where you have unbelievers all around you in your yard as a, as a pastor not as an individual church member, but as a pastor, your yard is full of political you know, signs. Is that the best thing to do in relationship? We had a spirited discussion you know, uh, about that. So those are, if you're thinking about those things, it's good. It's uncomfortable to think about some of those things. How do I, how do I work that? And you, you start feeling in your heart, well, wait a minute. You know, I mean, why should I, ha- you know, and now you're in, why should I have to be worried about what they're doing? They're, they're evil. I mean, these are evil people, and they are evil people. Their positions are wicked and evil. Um, but so were you before you came to Christ, and these evil, wicked people are the ones that you want to take the, take the gospel to. Yes, sir. Sure. Yeah. So whether it be religion or any work of yeah. uh, political yep. politics or any type of association, that gives yep. you many different angles. Yeah. Well, first of all, I think it's just totally sinful to ride motorcycles. So <laughs> given the fact that I was just on one last night. So um which is why I, I I'm joking by the way. Uh why I am why I opened this up with and why he said this is a very difficult issue. Because in one sense, I'm saying, you, you know, you, you, you can't go out of the world and you can't, I mean, the world is, I mean, if you say I'm a Republican using our earlier thing, well, you're wicked, you're this, you're that. I mean, you can't, you can't change that. So, you know, it doesn't mean stop engaging and stop having, you know, in, you know political positions or in your case, stop riding a motorcycle. What he's pushing back here is a careless attitude. I need to be aware of what unbelievers are saying and how they can perceive this, A. And B, to what level will, in this case, riding a motorcycle you know, on the parkway is different from going to Sturgis, where I've got you know, my... Maybe my, you know, if John Purdy was here, he would have his CMA, you know, Christian Motorcycle Association stuff. 
they go and they pass out water and Bibles and those type of things. That's different from, let's say, something that's not Sturgis, Daytona Bike Week. So I go to Daytona Bike Week, and I'm there, but and I'm riding during the day, and you know that may be acceptable. But Daytona Bike Week, you know, on Daytona Strip at ten o'clock at night, you know, on my Harley, with all the other stuff that's going on there, that may be something that it, that can associate you with questionable things. So now you're in this. And I think the, the purpose of your, your tearing and quest, you're asking, the purpose of this is what's going on in my heart because I don't want to have an attitude of the same thing that comes in my heart like you expressed. Why, why do I have to, you know, I'm not doing anything wrong. Why do I have to restrict because of, and that is not the attitude of the, of the Lord. And B, I want to win these people. You know, uh, and so I don't want my innocent behavior. It's innocent to ride a motorcycle, hardly or otherwise. It can be perfectly legitimate and fun, whether you wear a leather vest or whether you wear whatever. But I don't want what is truly innocent to be evil spoken of because of, and here circumstance, circumstance, circumstance. So those can be, so those can be difficult. So enjoy your motorcycle. Um, you know. Just don't ride it to Sturgis at night. So, what else? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Of course. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, sir. And that's a really good segue into our second question here. Will it, will it be consistent with Christ-like character? Do we want to imitate Jesus Christ in all of our desires, words, thoughts, and deeds? If we say we belong to Christ, then our first consideration when deciding whether to do this or that should be what do the Scriptures teach about our Lord's attitude. So again, these are matters where we're applying ourselves. So these are not commandments not to do something or commandments to do something or prohibitions. We want to then apply the Lord's attitude. So we're free to do this, but how, how do you apply the Lord's attitude, uh, which was toward obedience, toward people, and toward truth? And that's coming out in the way that, you know, that I live. You're not responsible for the convo speaker. You're not responsible for the other person ripping people down. But you can be an example of, of the Lord in, uh, in the way that you respond to it. Is this consistent with who he is, his likeness? Could this bring his name or, or, and the gospel into question? Will others see what I'm doing 
and question my commitment to to follow him and that goes back to the the others why I linked these these two things together any thoughts on that one so let's say the first one you don't want to have a careless attitude toward the unbelieving world stick in the eye kind of thing and then the second one you you want to have the attitude of Christ All right, let's look at the next one. Will it magnify the glory of God? We should live in such a way that the word of God is honored and God's glory is on display. We must ask if the activity or behavior could undermine God's name. Could God's honor and praise be diminished as a result of this? Some things may seem mundane and rather unspiritual, eating, working, uh, hobbies, leisure, etc. But Christians must always be alert as to how God can be gratefully praised for all uh, He has provided. We must avoid anything that could detract from bringing Him thankful praise for everything that we have the freedom to, to enjoy. Remember two examples related to the glory of, of God. One has to do with John Piper, and he wrote an article years ago, um, How to Drink Orange Juice to the Glory of God. You read it? And he basically takes that passage about, you know, whether you eat or whether you drink, do all the glory of God. And he asks the question, like, you know, so what does that mean practically? So all the way down to drinking orange juice, how do you drink orange juice to the glory of God? And, and he went through this whole thing about, well, you're sitting there and you're, the cup of orange juice is in front of you and you're thinking, wow, orange is an interesting color. That is quite amazing. Uh, one of many colors, uh, colors in the, in the rainbow. Um, wow. I have the ability to see colors. So not only you know, is there one of many colors, warm colors, cold colors, but I have the ability to, to actually see them. Um, and this is liquid. Uh, liquid, solids, uh, I mean, you know, it, it has a, uh, a specific feel to it that's different from, from something else. And the Lord has made this and what man is creation is you know is amazing and this actually came from from an orange and an orange that actually grows on a tree and that is fruit that's produced from the sap in the tree that you know goes down into the roots and and he goes through this whole thing about how he's intentionally thinking about the Lord and God's glory and how he has done all this it's an extreme example and I'm not saying, nor was he saying, that every time you sit down to drink your orange juice, you go through those machinations. The point, though, is the way you should be interpreting life and what should be coming out of your heart is an awareness to God and a thanksgiving to God, and you're giving glory to God. You're counting your blessings. You're being aware of, you know, of, of those things. So that, that's one example. Can I give God glory for this, will God get glory for this? The other was, um, how do you teach your children about the things of the Lord? Deuteronomy six, whenever you're whenever you're on the beach, um, or just how do you teach your children about the, the things of the Lord? Devo- devotions. Does that mean that you know you're sitting down? And you have a you know a one hour Bible study with your kids every day. It's the same time. Um, if they'll hold still that long, more power to you. That's good. But you know whether you lie down, whether you rise up, whether you walk by the way, how, how do you how do you hide their commandments? You know in their in their hearts. So you're walking on the beach with your your child, or you're playing with your daughter. She, maybe she's just so young that you're just doing sandcastles and you're saying, you know, to her, isn't sand interesting? I wonder where that came from. Did you know that that came, you know, from a 
actually from seashells that were you know, creatures that God made, and then they get all crushed up and beat up. Look at how the waves are coming in here and just washing these things up on the beach. Isn't that amazing? You know, look how big the sea is. Did you know God's even bigger than the sea? You know, the Bible says that you know, the, the Lord's the one who stops the waves that, that are here. You know, how those waves actually stop? There's gravity. And, and so you're just using natural events in life. You don't have to preach a sermon, again, to your kid every time you're doing sandcastles. But you're just aware of these teachable moments. You're aware that you're drawing everything back to the Lord, you know, in some way. You're giving thanks to God in some way. You're pointing to Him and His creation in in some way, and this is saying, if I can't do that with a legitimate freedom, then is it a good thing to be engaged in? It's not saying you can't do it. He's saying that one of the questions you should ask yourself is, will it magnify the, the glory of God? Can I find some way to connect the Lord to it? Um, and, or will it, be, will it be the opposite? Any thoughts on that one? It is. That's a worthy, uh, worthy effort. Try to uh, get them to understand the balance. You know, it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. He won't just rip your face off; he'll melt your face off. Jesus is dangerous. Um, and yet, that's exactly what makes his love so amazing. That this God, who is a consuming fire, stooped and took upon himself human flesh, laid down his life and said from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And then offers himself freely to us if we will just turn from ourselves and our sin. To him and receive his grace and his mercy, but it's cheap grace. It's not not real mercy. If in the background there is not a legitimate view and picture of of this holy Creator, who's pure and dwells in unapproachable light, and so there's the two things that you know that that are there, and we. We have a Christian society that for years, years being all the way back to 1920s, 30s, uh, that has emphasized, um, de-emphasized doctrine, not taught theology or doctrine or who God is in, in depth, and has emphasized evangelism from a revivalistic perspective. Pray the prayer, bow your head. Um, and those two things together have been a toxic mix that has produced a lot of, of false converts and a lot of bad views of God and 
you know, and, and practice, and that's what you're trying to undo, if you will, and that's really hard, you know, to do. Um, thinking even in some discussions I was having this past Sunday with a, with a brother who was talking about some of that, that very thing, those, some of those areas. And, um, and he was saying that there were, these, there were Christians, he was talking about Christians in particular wanting to help, un, you know, wanting to help unbelievers, wanting to make Jesus look nicer and better, the church look less judgmental to a specific element of society so that, uh, so that, they, would, that they would see and come to Christ. You know? um, and we talked about how that was bad anthropology to begin with. Um, you're not, I mean, people don't go to hell because they lack information. They don't go to hell because of anybody else. They're God-haters. Hate the light because their deeds are evil. There's none that understand. There's none that seeks after God. And he said, "But these are Christians, and so these Christians are trying to they're, they're trying to add to the gospel. They're trying to do put something else on top of that because they're saying it's not enough. Really, what they're saying. I mean, the gospel is not enough. I mean, it's yeah, of course. I mean, what? Uh, yeah, I mean, they already know Jesus died and He rose from the dead. And if you, you know, if you ask Him in your heart, He'll save you. But but they need more than that. They need more than 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 just that. And the problem is, it's a it's a truncated, um, a diminished view of the gospel, which is not the gospel at all. They're operating. These Christians are operating on a platform that this is the gospel, and that's not the gospel. The gospel is looking intently into the law where the Spirit of God convinces you of your utter sinfulness and God's total holiness. And then the Spirit of God convicts you and then the Spirit of God regenerates you. He does a supernatural work in your heart which grants you repentance towards God and faith in Christ, at the same time, you're exercising that personally, your own volition. You're calling upon the name of the Lord, you're repenting and, and, and you're believing, and it transforms you. And you acknowledge that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. And in humble submission to Him, you are so thankful for the washing that you have received that you then walk forward in a new life. Well, that is a gospel that's transformative, and that's a lot different than ask Jesus into your heart. Believe, you know, admit, confess, believe, and now you're going to heaven. Now just believe that. So it's a gospel that doesn't really transform. So there, some Christians are operating in that, you know, in that realm. of, uh, And so they're looking for, they, they, they can see this gospel is not transforming anyone because it's, it's not really the gospel. It's got parts of it, but it's not what you actually see, you know, laying out in, in, you know, in scripture. So then they're looking for something else as a reason for why isn't this working? Why isn't this actually changing people? Or in my case, I've got heart for the Lord. Bring people there, and they they listen. They pray. And then three, four weeks later, they're back out doing what they were doing before. And it must have been the devil that got them. Or it must have been, you know, that I just need to assure them that they're, you know, that, that they're saved. So in that decisionism, Arminian, you know, view, um, that's how it was coming out in, you know, in, an, in, in my church. So thanks for pushing my button there. That was, that was good. All right, a word about unity. Uh, we don't have a whole lot of time here, but this is just an acknowledgement that your work's not over, even if you ask all these questions and you're able to find answers in a clear conscience, you now have to live with those decisions with other believers. And other believers, <clears throat> Paul uses the term in Romans 14, a weak conscience, weak and strong, weak conscience, strong conscience, informed conscience, 
A strong conscience is an informed one. A weak conscience is an uninformed one. But both consciences are working. Your conscience uh, operates based upon the highest level of morality you, you believe in your heart, your mind. So it's, it's informed, and it can be informed rightly or wrongly. So we talked earlier, one of our brothers mentioned um, you know, a hyperconscience. What is a hyperconscience? It's a conscience that's over-instructed or instructed poorly. You've made things that are commands or prohibitions that God never did. And so it's going off. You believe these things. Um, you know, the proverbial story is the pastor who never plays golf on Sunday because he thinks it's wrong to play golf on Sunday. The evangelist comes in, asks him to play golf. He's not even preaching. He doesn't want to offend the evangelist, so they go play golf on Sunday afternoon, and the, guy, the pastor gets hit by a golf ball, and he says, I knew it, I knew it. He violated his conscience. You know, he, he shouldn't have done that. Was there anything wrong with playing golf on Sunday? Now you're going to apply your conscience there. So you, you can have a weak or uh, a strong conscience, a, an overactive but your conscience is functioning. It's functioning. You're making decisions. You're filtering it through this, this grid system. What is right? What's wrong? And then you're making decisions. And you're doing that with a bunch of other Christians that, that are in. Again, these are not areas that are commands or prohibitions. If you see a brother or sister doing something that the Lord specifically, uh, specifically prohibits that's called sinful, now, that's Matthew 18. This is not just leaving them in their, their conscience. This is loving them by confronting them. These are areas where you have to, uh, you have to apply your, your conscience. So, there are two warnings in Romans 14. If you just, I did a series on this years ago, preached all the way through Romans 14. Don't, don't judge uh, another man's servant. The whole point there is unto the Lord, unto the Lord. You're doing this unto the Lord. You know, I keep the day unto the Lord or not. I don't keep the day unto the Lord. Before the Lord you stand or fall. So the warning, overarching warning in Romans 14 is we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So you don't have to worry about somebody else in a matter of conscience. They'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ. What that verse says is you will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So... The very fact that we will stand before Christ and give an account even for how we've operated in our conscience toward others, toward Him, should be something that you're not just, I'm free willy-nilly. I'm going to give an account for the decision. So I better be able to, 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 to know that, that I'm doing this in freedom. So we're doing this before the Lord, but there are two. How somebody with a properly informed conscience and a properly instructed conscience responds to someone who's not as mature in their conscience in a specific area. And you can be strong in one area and weak in another area. I mean, you can be a rock star in this area of the conscience and in this other area you may be, you're just blowing it. But how does the strong respond to the weak and then how does the weak respond to, to the strong? And so that's really what this last section is about. And he starts with, um, again, the reminder where Scripture gives no, no clear direction on sin. And anyone who is less free in their conscience is warned not to judge others who are free, but rather be thankful for the Lord's leading in their, in their life. And he says... This is very difficult for somebody who is less free. Um, I would much rather loosen up a legalist than try to tighten up a libertine. That's a lot harder to do. But loosening up a legalist, and again, proverbial language, loosening up somebody who has a, a hyperconscience um, is, is difficult. 
because if you really believe this, people that, that have a hyperconscience or people that have a conscience that, that is operating up here, most of the time they're operating up there because they, they love the Lord and they don't want to do anything or they've come out of a background that, that this has hurt somebody and I don't even want to get anywhere close to it and that's a really good attitude. The problem, though, is then that they begin to look at others based on that, that, you know, that, that attitude. So, I, when I came to Christ, I watched garbage as an unbeliever. So, somewhere, first year or two, I got rid of my TV, and I didn't have a TV for probably eight or ten years. And I didn't miss it at all whenever it was gone. But when I went in another Christian's home, I wasn't thinking, I've got a TV, are you kidding me? What a total waste of time. I mean, I understand that I could be reading my Bible rather than watching TV, and they don't. There's a, you know, an example, or I've used the example before, I was someone who drank alcohol to excess. I would have been a biblical drunkard. I didn't carry a bottle around in my truck or fall. I mean, I, I fully functioned, and I, if I stopped drinking, I wouldn't have went into DTs or anything. But my life was marked by alcohol and drunkenness to excess, partying, you know, corporate lifestyle on the weekends, which is what the Bible calls a, a drunkard. So when I came to Christ... I didn't want anything whatsoever to do with alcohol. I still don't drink it. But I even came out of the gate saying, it's sinful. You know, I read the books where Jesus turned water into really good grape juice. There was no alcohol in that whatsoever. And I was responding to my experience. And so here's my conscience. Well, as I matured, I actually understood and... And, um, and there was a point where I would have said, I do not understand how a Christian can drink alcohol. Now, granted, there were some. I wasn't seeing it practiced in the way we've talked about where somebody's having a glass of wine over dinner. This was, you know, drinking a beer, smoking a cigar, and I'm a Christian. You know, so some response there in coming from that. But the first warning is don't judge me in that position, don't judge others because this man or woman is doing this unto the Lord. They're free in their conscience and before the Lord they'll stand for. They're the Lord's servant. They're not your servant. They don't have to answer to you. They'll answer to Christ. And by the way, you will answer to Christ. You are coming before the judgment seat of Christ. And you'll be judged not only for how you, how you uh, uh, worked out your conscience, but how you treated that other Christian and whether you judged them whether you're not. So there's the first angle that's there. And here's an example. You know, Sunday, I wrote this down. Uh, Sunday morning starts Saturday night. And so you think badly of another Christian who always does something on Saturday evenings. Is it a good principle that you should prepare for Sunday morning? You don't just roll in here. And so you hear Sunday morning starts Saturday night. And so you have made it a practice in your life to do nothing. You don't invite people over. You go to bed at a decent hour. I'm telling you, these are really good practices. Go to bed at a decent hour. You prepare yourself for Sunday morning on, on Saturday night. But you have another Christian who doesn't do that at all. In fact... They're inviting other church people over every Saturday night. And those church people don't leave their house till some like 11 o'clock at night. And you've even seen some of, those, some of those church people that have little kids, not even, they're late to Sunday school almost every Sunday. Well, the reason they're late to Sunday school is almost every Sunday is because they're over at, you know, Brother Jason's house and they're staying up till 11 o'clock at night. I mean, if they would go to bed at 9 o'clock like me, don't they know that Saturday and Sunday morning starts on Saturday night? Then they wouldn't be struggling in that way. Now I am judging them, and I'm sinning you know, in doing that. So there's a principle. Is it a good principle? Yeah. You should prepare for Sunday morning, and you may need to restrict some of the things that you do on Saturday night. 
out of wisdom or otherwise. And if you are late to Sunday school on a regular basis, you need to ask yourself, is it because I'm out till 11 o'clock the, the night before? But that's none of my business in the sense of judging that, that other person. I'm in a discipling relationship. I'm helping them maybe work some of those angles, but I'm not sitting here and sitting in condemnation you know, over them. So that's one. The other is the, you know, is the opposite. He gives you some instructions there. Uh, you confess that sin to the Lord. You thank God for that person's maturity, and then you press on to maturity yourself. The other is the opposite. The strong person Uh, equally warns not to think less of others without freedom, but to love them. First, by never being in fence. Then by asking yourself, is this exercise of liberty the best choice in a particular context? And then carefully discern that this is actually a clear conscience and not a seared one. So this is the opposite. I'm a strong Christian now. I understand that I'm free in my, in my conscience. And so you run into me two years post-saved where alcohol's wrecked my life, and you hear me say, I don't drink alcohol, I think it's a sin. Um, and you're sitting there, and maybe you're helping me say, you know, that might not be the best thing to say about other Christians, but you're not sitting there saying, Brian, he's so judgmental. I mean, I'm not even sure if this guy's saved. He's so, he's so nasty, you know. Um, and you try to blow him up with, uh, with your freedoms, you know, in, in some way. So I need to be loving toward, toward immature Brian in that, in that scenario. First, by never being an offense or a spiritual hindrance. I'm subordinating my liberties, because if they're liberties, then you should be able to easily give them up. Um, and when, whenever a complaint arises, careful and thoughtful interaction should follow so that an understanding is reached for the glory of God. The conscience of one should not rule another in areas of liberty, but love should prevail in every consideration, even if it means eliminating the exercise of certain liberties. And I would encourage you to read Romans 14 and flesh some of that out. Closing thoughts. All right. Next Tuesday over in Ministry Center for breakfast. Father, we do love you. We thank you for making us think hard and um, uncomfortable even. We pray that you would help us to be faithful to you and your word uh, in all these areas. We should take them seriously that we'll stand before you one day, even in these areas of, of liberty. Um, we pray that you keep us aware that we live out our Christian lives before unbelievers um, and in the context of other Christians. And we want to do all of that in, a, in truth and love. And I pray you bless us as we go about our day. In Jesus' name, amen.